0: Welcome to Voice for Choice podcast, the podcast that focuses on China issues with special attention to the central and Eastern European perspective. I'm your host, Karanja Mečková. Joining me today will be Una Aleksandra Berzina-Cerenková. Una is a research fellow at Choice and head of the Political Science PhD program in China Study Center at Riga Stragins University, head of the Asia program at the Latvian Institute of International Affairs, a member of CHURN and European Think Tank Network on China. Hello and welcome.
1: Hello. Actually, this is my f- second time on Voice for Choice. So I'm already, you know, uh, um, a very um, a veteran. A veteran, yes. <laughs> uh, so very happy to be here again. Thank
0: you so much for accepting the invitation. Today, we will discuss China and Russia's partnership and how that manifests in Central and Eastern Europe, as well as China's position on the war in Ukraine. Before we dwell into the current events, uh, I just wanted to start on a personal note and ask you, what was your first impression when you came to China for the first time?
1: Actually, I was 10 years old, and my first uh, um, encounter with uh, the Chinese-speaking uh, world and just uh, um, starting learning Mandarin was in Taipei, in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, so the first impression was extreme heat, um, uh, moisture, and then that's it. I don't remember very much afterwards because then the routine set in and then the re- routine also included um, a Chinese school and friends and baseball. So that was the first uh, the first impression. The second impression was Beijing and I was already 17 or 18 years old. Uh, it was a different kind of heat. It was a different kind of moisture, but it was also a very strong impression. And then the routine set in again. I had to study, had to do my Chinese, um, hopefully, hopefully. I will get to repeat one of these experiences uh, sometime soon. About Beijing, we're not so sure. Mm. About Taipei, hopefully. I
0: hope so too. <laughs> and do you remember the moment when you decided to focus professionally on China?
1: Well, um, it, it was kind of a s- step-by-step uh, process and the pieces came together. Um, I had studied Chinese and then I had studied international relations and political science, but that didn't really um, click. I had written about Chinese domestic political discourse because that was something where I could get an edge over my colleagues who had uh, done this for years and were really good at uh, political science theories and IR theory. So I thought, oh, this is something that I could, you know, um, uh, maybe uh, bring bring something fresh to the table and then I would not fail immediately. But then um, China became a more visible presence in my region in the Baltic States. And so people who had any kind of China expertise, let alone linguistic expertise, were um, immediately became sought after. And so that's how me, as well as several other colleagues, got into this, got into, into China studies.
0: These days, as we speak, China's special diplomatic mission is touring Kiev, Warsaw, Paris, Berlin and, Mos- and Moscow in a stated mission to search for a political solution to the war in Ukraine. What do you make of this initiative? Is it just a PR stand or is China genuinely interested in finding a solution to what it calls crisis in Ukraine? Can we expect something tangible to come out of Lihue's trips?
1: I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge that uh, the goal here is for China to be more visible the global stage as a global player so china has been casting itself as a mediator of sorts peace broker somebody with an alternative answer to the world's problems we've heard you know opinions about chinese ethics providing grounds for contemporary um challenges of, of of high tech for example right so this alternative parallel solution thinking, and that is how it's been manifesting itself in foreign policy. That's new, right? So that is something that's been picking up with the Global Security Initiative, with the Global Development Initiative, also, surprisingly, with the Global Civilization Initiative. That's a very interesting document to read, right? Um, and the endorsements as well coming out from different China's partners. So I see this as a part of, of that role, of, of that um, kind of claim that We want to be at the table. We also saw that with China's near Arctic state position, right? So we want to be present at global affairs because they influence us. Um, And so whether China is or not genuinely interested, they are interested in some kind of settlement, of course, because for them, instability equals um, challenges for Belt and Road Initiative that has been not in its best shape already. At the same time, whether their ideal outcome is the same one that President Zelensky uh, reiterated to Xi Jinping during that famous phone call a while back, I would very much doubt that. Hmm. Um,
0: What about the choice of the capitals that Li Hui is visiting? What do you make out of that?
1: Yes, um, of course, the... It's 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 interesting that I think the most interesting, of course, uh, will be that the the key of what what that is going to bring, what kind of visuals we're going to out of that. We're going to get out of that, because, of course, from the phone call that the information was quite scarce. We got the readouts, but of course, we do not expect um, something groundbreaking here because. What um, Li Hui is going to stick to, and that's uh, we're pretty sure, right? Unless something unexpected happens, he's going to stick stick to the same 12 points already laid out in China's position paper on uh, on peace in Ukraine, right? That or the something that's been inaccurately called a peace plan, because this is not a a plan. Those are some uh, points that China is making. Some of them are very vague, and some of them are just uh, unrealistic. So, um, But at the end of the day, those are the talking points. And I'm sure we're going to hear just the repetition of them. Same thing that Xi Jinping did uh, talking to Zelensky. Now, the choice of capitals, of course, yes, well, you cannot do without Berlin. So this is a demonstration of of the importance um, of, of Germany. But also, Again, it's the same approach to regions that China has been exercising before. You know, you have EU capitals in and then you have Norway, right? Mm-hmm. Those kinds of trips, you have 16 plus one out of which you had 16 plus one out of which 11 were EU members and five were not. So this China's approach, a region is what we say is a region and a regional trip is what we kind of draw to be the 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 map that we draw to be a regional trip. Of course, after the visit to Kiev, it will be very interesting to look at the Moscow visit again. And why will the Moscow visit be interesting? Because Li Hui spent 10 years in Moscow as an ambassador. So this is for him, this is not a visit, this is a, a house call, a return. He's very familiar with the Russian political structure, with the Russian uh, approach he has been actually also a diplomat serving in the Soviet Union so this for him is return to familiar uh, terrain so that is why the visit not just because of the choice of the capital it's obvious that he was going to go to Moscow but because of his personal ties it will be interesting to look and that's why we need the visuals we need the body language we will have to read those cards a number of Central and Eastern European leaders
0: have expressed doubts about China's credibility as a peacemaker, and this has been further exacerbated by the recent diplomatic scandal of uh, Lu Shaye, who questioned the sovereignty of former Soviet countries. Do his words reflect Beijing's vision of the world order, where the sovereignty of the smaller states is somehow limited by the interests of the hegemons surrounding them, or were they just a slip of an incompetent diplomat?
1: I am... Quite convinced perhaps this is a speculative um, conviction, but still it does it does appear that indeed China does believe in a world of um, stronger powers and spheres of influence. So this is not necessarily something very Chinese. this is just realist politics um, in playing out in reality. they do they do believe that regional Smaller powers should respect the spheres of interests of larger players to avoid destabilizing. They also, I think, they there is also this belief in Chinese foreign policy, not just again in Chinese foreign policy, but also in Chinese foreign policy, that smaller states don't really have the capacity to think uh, for themselves, that they're not really, that they're never really independent, that they're either in one camp or another, they're a proxy of someone or someone else. That is also showing in China's approach to Russia's invasion in Ukraine, quite clearly. So I think Lu Xiaoye did not have the approval or the mandate of his employer to give out these comments. But it does demonstrate a certain mindset behind the, the diplomacy. On the other hand, also, I have to say that, of course, um, his comments when it came... The Baltics were the loudest when it, after after Lucia spoke out. But I have to remind that his comment, whichever way you read this, whichever way you interpret this, how, however you indulge into his logic, you cannot it or you cannot say that this has anything to do with the Baltic States because the Baltic independence, uh, the independence of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia in 1991 was a regained and a restored independence rather than a newly found, newly established independence, right? So a restoration of the 1918 um, sovereign republics. Uh, But on the other hand, this comment directly involves and directly relates to Ukraine. And that is worrying. Mm. And that ties it back to if, if this mindset is in, indeed something that characterizes foreign policy thinking in China, then one has to wonder again where do Beijing's um, peacemaking efforts lead?
0: We of course must acknowledge that the the spokesperson um, reassured the international community that this is not there is no change in uh, China's um, official position on, on the sovereignty of the of, of these countries. And and also just a few days after the uh, the, the controversial interview, uh, Xi Jinping spoke for the first time with Volodymyr Zelensky uh, since the beginning of the invasion. Uh, and right now, as we mentioned, China is dispatching an envoy to Kiev. So does that suggest that Beijing is on a damage control mission? Do you think there is a direct link between um, between Lushai's comments and the timing of the first? phone call between the two leaders.
1: Oh, this is exactly the kind of stuff why people who are in political science decide to go into history. Because when you have archival material and you can finally answer the questions that have been bugging your colleagues for decades, this is going to be one of those questions. So until we get some kind of insider knowledge or archival evidence some decades later, it will be hard to tell. So we can speculate. It does look too close to be a complete coincidence, right? It does look that like there was an element, even though of course we had been hearing about the call before. It was promised. It was on the table. but the timing was not clear. It kept being kind of pushed pushed away. It wasn't directly postponed, but kind of it was never it was vague. It was in the ether. And voilà, two days after Lou Chayez, uh conversation um, on on with with the host of a French TV show, the call finally is being made. We don't know, but sometimes again, uh, perhaps when we see coincidences, when we don't respect the coincidence, then sometimes we also give ground to some conspiracy theories that don't necessarily, you know, have have anything to them. So it's really hard to say. It's just it's looking like it could have been one of the elements. Perhaps there were different dates in Chinese thinking. We also know that, of course, these things don't happen, haphazard. They are planned. Perhaps that is something that we can try to tease out of our Ukrainian colleagues. Maybe one day they will admit what happened really there. Yeah, for now, it's just a speculation. Uh, you said in an interview for
0: a South China Morning Post Should Ukraine win the war, it would likely become a NATO member as a country within its 1991 borders, as recognized by China. Thus, Beijing's relentless attacks on NATO suggest that China cannot be considered neutral. Does it mean that China already sees Ukraine as halfway in NATO, an alliance which it feels threatened by in the Indo-Pacific?
1: I think China is realistic about the fact that not all nato member states sup- would support ukraine's accession in the short term i think they're kind of also hoping for that because that would be quite disastrous uh, for again for for china's long term goals to de facto have a us presence even closer to russia's borders than than before right and 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 have more influence in europe than before but I would like to say that American influence in Chinese eyes in Ukraine does not necessarily equal NATO membership. I think that those are two different things for them. And also, NATO in the Indo Pacific, they're not as worried about NATO in the Indo Pacific because it's NATO. They're worried because it's the US. Uh, the Chinese, of course, see NATO perhaps even justly, right? Because the US is a huge donor in, in this situation. And I speak as a bolt, even though we've increased our uh, defense spending to. to to top the 2% goal, but still, of course, it's just drop in the bucket. It doesn't really um, make up for for the spending that the American taxpayer is is putting forward. So yes, the Chinese do believe that NATO is as strong as the U.S. is. And also, they're very convinced, and they've seen it before, that if not all NATO members are on board with something, the U.S. acts differently. It can create a coalition of the willing. It can create an ad hoc, minilateral arrangement for a specific goal, it can create new alliances such as the Quad, for example, or AUKUS, right? AUKUS, whichever way you have to pronounce. Sorry, not a native speaker. I will always struggle with these. Uh, so they are not necessarily thinking that Ukraine joining NATO is the big issue here because it's far in the future. And quite frankly, it's not quite, it, in their opinion, it's not quite decided. What they don't like is the fact that. This gives the U.S. more control in Europe, just like in the Indo-Pacific. What are then China's goals in Ukraine? Well, I think in a sense, even though we have been saying that that the 12 points are very vague, you can kind of get an idea. And I think, of course, in my colleagues, we've been debating this, that the 12th point is quite interesting. The 12th point is about reconstruction. Mm. I think that, of course, China would hope... To go back to the cooperation they've had before, perhaps to use this also, maybe even for European or international reconstruction money to um, provide their companies with with some opportunities there. By the way, we don't know whether that's going to happen or not because that's going to be a Ukrainian choice, right? And and we don't know how how that's going to go. Um, so that is that is something that they 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 see, but I think. That is why we have to follow Li Hui's visit very closely, because among the talking points that are going to come out, we're going to see more of that vision. And I think it's very important. That the question that you you asked is 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 indeed correctly phrased, because it's not just pushing against something; it's also wanting something out of the situation. And I think it's going to become more and more clear. Of course. China wants uh, Ukraine to would have would have liked ideally if that's why I'm not a fan of the theory that China kind of endorsed Russian invasion in February 24, because that just seems counterintuitive in a sense, maybe, yes, they didn't mind, you know, Russia trying to, quote unquote, in their opinion, stabilize Donbass or something, you know, the similar language, uh, obviously, meaning just bringing in troops and uh, establishing control. But this sort of destabilization, this sort of, of um, just tra- tragic uh, tragic war in, 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 in the heart of Europe, I don't think that's something they would endorse also given their bilateral relationship with Ukraine. So yes, ideally, I think they would they would want that this hadn't happened the way it did, but it did so now they kind of probably are going to try to, I mean, let's also we have to remember that China, Chinese diplomacy is not always as knowledgeable, especially when it comes to middle and small powers, as we sometimes imagine it to be. There's a lack of expertise, and there's going to be more lack of expertise because of the human factor, because there's going to be less and less people who would go to these countries, who have experience with these countries, and who are willing to do the work. So we will, again, be seeing factual errors, historical errors, insensitivities, all the issues of unexperienced diplomacy, and it's quite possible that in this case also, you know, we're going to, who knows, we're, we're going to hear Li Hui or, or even Xi Jinping later asking, you know, inviting Ukraine to jo- join the global security initiative, that kind of thing, right? Something that they would speak to Belarus about. So uh, this is, this is you know, this is almost a joke, but who knows, right? So I, I would say, of course, for them, um, a, a neutral Ukraine, a Ukraine that, again, uh, is sits at the table, discusses the options right now, is not uh, going, you know, crazy about retaking Crimea and basically regaining their land. Just just talk, right? Stop the bloodshed. That kind, that kind of Ukraine perhaps right now would be more comfortable for China. On the other hand, whether China would want Ukraine to be fully overtaken by Russia at this point also, um, Probably they're they're also seeing that that's not realistic. Knock on wood, they're seeing the dynamic. So I'm also not an absolute fan of the argument that China is going out of its way to supply Russia with miltech. Um, again, it's a little counterintuitive. Of course, they they're keeping for them. Of course, uh, uh, Russia defeated also would be an issue. Because at this point, Russia is the only country and the only border where they can breathe. They're surround, you know, that the Chinese foreign policy thinking we're surrounded, kind of right. we we have all these issues, and now with Afghanistan, it's not getting any better either. That's why the the friendship with with Taliban, right, and the asking the Taliban not to support um, extremist forces in China, quote unquote. But I think we all also have to be aware that there's um, there's scenarios, there's different plans of action for for different outcomes. Uh, But again, Li Hui's appointment um, as a special envoy, as a special ambassador, does show, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, does show this ambition to be present, to be at the table, to play the role of a broker in a far away from home setting. As you said, it will be Ukraine who will decide
0: whether, you know, Beijing uh, will play a role in the post war Reconstruction. And so far, Kiev has been very cautious not to alienate China. What is the what is the long-term strategy here? What, what is the Ukrainian leadership hoping to achieve with China?
1: Yeah, um, I'm not a, a specialist on on Ukrainian foreign policy, but I would think, having read my Ukrainian colleagues including the ones who publish on choice by the way <laughs> uh, that the of course you you have to be smart about this this is this is, a, this is what diplomacy is about you don't want to alienate everyone even though you understand the limitations and perhaps in 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 some closed door restricted conversations you were absolutely aware of of you know China's level of support which is like i said not very high but moderate but still is there towards russia right some some sort of a shoulder lending uh, type of support to russia but then when you are do when you're speaking publicly of course you don't want to alienate the one of the biggest uh, superpowers globally also given the fact that the signals from european leaders have been okay you know what we could use china as a mediator here right so kiev in that sense is not only trying not to make a a problem bigger than it is, right, kind of trying to keep a door open for China to do the right thing almost, right, so, but it also perhaps is a little bit, it's a nod to Europeans saying, okay, you know, sure, whatever works, let's not, let's not shut that door.
0: What are some of the narratives that uh, appear, first of all, in China's domestic space, but also that China is projecting uh, through its communications channels, such as the, you know, Twitter uh, accounts of its embassies or other communication channels on the war in Ukraine? Do you think, have have you maybe noticed... To some extent, that there is uh, a convergence on some of the rhetoric uh, on on the same talking points that Russia is communicating.
1: Uh, certainly, at the beginning of, of Russia's invasion, we did see that uh, there were a few of a few of Russia's uh, narratives that were amplified in China on three levels: the official, the highest uh, leadership level, the foreign affairs communication level and also the state media level so these three levels were repeating some stories including of course the story about nato expansion being the pushing russia to the wall bit the story about ukraine not being really sovereign and and not be, and being a proxy here the story the anti-color revolutions right that's a very important point on one hand yes China says it respects the sovereignty of all countries. But on the other hand, in, in many documents in strategic documents pertaining to security and foreign policy, we see this um, critique of color revolutions, including the documents China has signed with China. And they do see the events, the Maidan revolution of, of uh, 2014, as a color revolution, too. So... They, they would amplify these 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 narratives. There were some narratives where they would draw a line, though. My colleagues have pointed out that the Nazi story, the Russian denazification project, was not really picked up by Chinese officials nor Chinese diplomats. So that wasn't something uh, that did come up in the in the media, but. In general, China was reluctant to amplify that particular story about Russia denazifying Ukraine. There were, of course, um, other more ridiculous and more scandalous um, situations as well. For example, the Russian um, disinformation regarding American biolabs in Ukraine. That was picked up in the Chinese uh, information space. So again, I think the big filter here is whether this particular Russian narrative helps China or not. And China's goal here is to push against the U.S., push against the U.S. as a regional security actor, push against the U.S. as a global, as they call it, hegemon, right? We have the paper out on on, China, on U.S. global hegemony, critiquing it, you know, on, on the, the Chinese side. So those narratives that help, China, keep that image. I mean, biolabs are a great help in that sense, right? American biolabs, oh my God. Um, plus, it also s- subtly helps to push against the COVID narrative that the Americans are, you know, uh, telling that, the, that that originated from a from lab in, in in Wuhan. So this is kind of a, a, a tip-for-tat, very convenient response, right? Oh, but what about your biolabs, which we heard about from the Russians? So this is... When it works, when it helps China, that's when it's going to be amplified. Those narratives are not going to be amplified out of solidarity with the Russians or out of help towards the Russian cause. That's my main point here. This
0: tacit support of Russia, as well as, you know, uh, some of this rhetoric on the war, including, you know, denying the agency of of some of the Central and Eastern European states have really um, harmed China's image in the region. Do you think that what is was what's driving uh, the approach of uh, some of these uh, Central and Eastern European countries towards China right now is solely the war or I mean, in other words, do you think there is a way back to warming up the the ties again to mending ties with China? Uh, Should China change its um, position and and play a positive role in in finding solution to to the end uh, of the conflict?
1: this this question and, and this this line of thinking definitely has a lot of variables so of course if something extraordinary were to happen in terms of china's position and china's role here we can expect anything but so far i agree with you and i agree with your with your analysis and your framing here that this has really china's support at least to the russian narratives here right that are undermining sovereignty of the states that are very close to Russia geographically, including my own country, this has really brought the point home that China that it's personal, right? So before that, out of the Baltic states, the China issue was personal for Lithuanians. That's that's where, you know, that's where the the big the big issue and the and and, and the big spat happened also because uh some some of, of China's actions were actually immediately had to do with how the lithuanians feel and with the reactions towards lithuanian symbols but uh, for for latvia and i dare say estonia as well this was a faraway issue um yes it, it was reported that you know china's secondary sanctions basically on law in lithuania and the pressuring of lithuania is, is is something that's unlawful from from an international law perspective but The issue was not about Latvia or Estonia and China. But then after the Russian invasion in Ukraine, immediately the question is was how is China going to react? And when the news came out with you know China endorsing these narratives and also providing the Russian official position on the news, you know, as a neutral story or as a news piece, right? Signing and implementing cooperation agreements on media, uh, information sharing, these kinds of things. And just also, of course, the UN votes, the UN speeches, which were reported in the local media, immediately made this personal, suggesting that China is not really a supporter of these smaller states' sovereignty um, in in as much as, as, as it appeared to be before. So this is a watershed, definitely, for the perception of China in the region. Before that, yes, the relationship was already deteriorating, but mostly due to external factors, to the US factor, to China's securitization trade, or also to the EU, kind of understanding you know, the trifecta of, 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 of how China was being seen, understanding the challenges of, of some Chinese policies, including tech, tech policies. But then this was about nationhood, about national survival, and you want to see whether or not your national survival matters to the country that calls itself your partner, right? And then you see, oh, had we been in this situation, had we not been in NATO, this could have happened to us, and you would have reacted the same way, right? That's the logic that speaks to the person who's not a political scientist, not an IR professional, a person who's just happy living in their own country and enjoying this, uh, reinstated freedom of this country. So yes, I would say it would be hard to go back from this, even the international context aside, but we never know what can happen, right? But recently we saw uh, that there has been
0: more exchanges uh, between China and China's officials and uh, representatives of the European institutions as well as uh, European leaders. What does that signal for the months to come? Can we speak about a very careful detente
1: in the EU-China relations? Well, I think we can see that this is, we're certainly entering a very interesting time, so it's a great time to be a China watcher. <laughs> um, we see that china of course is pushing the bilateral relationship so we see a little bit of a kind of more of a cold shoulder towards the eu level and of course the 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 previous summit that was in spring april one right that that doesn't really not not a lot of things come out of this also, you know, the, the visits, um, you know, the pe- people have compared Ursula von der Leyen's program with Macron's program and said that, you know, they're different. I'm, I'm That's that's not my method, but but I, be- I believe them, right? So, but against this backdrop, China is really reaching out to European leaders, is really trying to fall back on Europe in China's dispute with the U.S., is really endorsing strategic autonomy, and is really looking for conversation. Again, to go back to what we spoke about, in, in an interesting, creative way, right? Carving out regional routes, not in a way we would expect. But this is an interesting time because the conversation is happening. I guess Europe, shouldn't, Europe should keep in mind what, who the partners are. But these kinds of conversations are interesting to follow. So we're going to see much more of that in the months to come.
0: I have one last question. I ask all my guests for an advice for young China scholars.
1: Oh, first of all, don't forget what the classical sonologists have been telling us. We have to know Chinese history. We have to know Chinese geography. Even if we're foreign affairs, international relations scholars, we really, really need that. But again, when you're doing Chinese history, always be mindful of the official story and compare it against other sources that are available to you. Also, do not be intimidated by the fact that your Mandarin isn't exactly as stunning as you would like it to be. That is normal under these circumstances. Work on it. Of course, we're all all slipping a little bit. It's really hard. My colleagues and I had to do a podcast in Mandarin a few months back. It was complicated. It was hard. It's not as easy as it used to be. But still... Don't worry about it. There's still opportunities out there to improve your Mandarin, including podcasts, by the way. <laughs> and uh, don't be intimidated by that. Also, don't be uh, don't be afraid to write. Do you don't have to write long stuff. Short stuff matters as long as you have a point to make and if you don't have an opinion, also don't be afraid to write. Sometimes we enter this perception that we always have to have a point and always have to take a side or take a stand. No, you know what? If you don't fully know, you you feel like you haven't gotten to the bottom of an issue, that doesn't mean that you cannot publish on this issue. Just uh, provide the arguments that you have and truth will come out. Yeah, keep digging.
0: Thank you so much, Una, for taking the time today to discuss China and Russia's partnership and its impact on the region of Central and Eastern Europe.
1: Thanks so much for having me and uh, love the format. All best to CHOICE.
0: On that note, if you are a young professional or a student from Europe, interested in China or China's relations with Europe, you can submit your latest work to CHOICE as part of our Future Choice initiative. For more information, check our website, www.ChinaObservers.eu This was Voice for Choice. If you would like to know more about our work, please do visit our website at ChinaObservers.eu. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We hope you'll make the right choice and tune in for the next episode of Voice for Choice.